I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Decrypt.co, this is the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Aaron. Today on the show is what I find is the most important use case for blockchain technology, and that's voting on the blockchain. In these times, in the United States, Voting in person, mail-in voting, remote voting. It is a very contentious subject. And it's contentious just talking about the voting process. However, now we can talk about fake news, manipulation, Cambridge Analytica, and your data to boot. So in this episode on voting on the blockchain, I have two guests. I have Gilbert Hill, CEO of Tap My Data, talking just about data and how it can affect your decision-making. And then I have Pete Martin, CEO of Votum, a company committed to putting voting in the palm of your hand and also on the blockchain for transparency and equality and equity. I'm going to talk to both of them to find out if this is a viable solution to the perils that the United States faces during this presidential election. Enjoy. Gilbert, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Hi, Matthew. So this is the start of voting on the blockchain. I'm going to talk to a Votum a little bit later about how to do that. But I'm talking to you right now because of data. You have a company called Tap My Data. You protect, help people not only know where their data is being used, but how to use their data. First, I want you to tell me a little bit about Tap My Data. Absolutely. Well, Tap My Data builds tools for people to basically own their digital identity and also for companies and political parties to rebuild trust um, with privacy by design and uh, with blockchain keeping the score. So we've got a mobile app for people to request their data, a secure wallet, and also a web platform for businesses and people to start talking data securely. Awesome. And the reason why I wanted you to let me know about that is because data is the way that, you know, all these companies are learning how to manipulate you, either if it's social media companies, if it's, uh, you know, advertisement companies. But what we're really focusing on today is voting and the companies, I'm going to call them companies as the Democratic and Republican Party companies. And they know how to get your data and influence your decision making. Can you tell me how they do that? That's right. And I think you hit the nail on the head there with with influence. And, you know, the connection with ad tech and politics is that it's not just about monetizing our data because the data on its own doesn't have so much value, but more about monopolizing and monetizing our attention, our screens, our lived digital identities. And politics learn from ad tech and picked up the ball on this and ran with it. So if we think about our data having value in this context, you know, we've started to see it being weaponized. And this is also where I think blockchain can be a force for good against this. It's when our data is taken in one context, it's processed, that's where it gets its value if you take the sort of data as an oil analogy, and it's transported to a different context, generally without our awareness. There's a great hack uh, on that great show on Netflix and the whole Cambridge Analytica 
scandal showed. When this is done to manipulate us emotionally, take us down a rabbit hole of content from random sources, or indicate to others that we hold a certain set of beliefs, it quickly starts to get worrying. And I've got first-hand experience of this. Just a couple of days ago, um, you know, now population replacement is a term that's used in certain far-right contexts. As someone who is not far-right, when I encountered it reading it in an article from an economist, I got no idea what they were talking about, so I Googled it. Now, no sooner had I done that, I now have a series of suggested searches and newsfeed items appear on my Twitter about other far-right conspiracy theories, which I'm not going to give it oxygen to here. Now, I didn't check in on other social platforms, but you can be sure that it's the same situation. Of course, this idea that there's a specific design to radicalize me because I'm a bearded white man of a certain age is in itself a conspiracy theory. But the fact is that a loomascape of platforms exist to make connections, which like blockchain can be manipulated by bad actors, which is kind of sort of, you know, a kind of social 51% attack. And of course, if this is taken to the next level, these, these data voodoo dolls or sort of mannequins constructed for each of us can be used to deny us access to our rights in voting or other areas. And that's classic. That's nothing new. That's classic redlining as revealed in the 1960s, where certain neighborhoods were denied access to products and life opportunities based on largely racial profiling. Um, and what's happening now is it's more subtle, but it's no less alarming. The data about us is held in others' hands, in this case, in political parties and their, and their agents. And the concept of inverse privacy applies. Now, this was introduced uh, in a paper by Microsoft back in 2016. It basically refers to a situation where some third party has access to your personal info, which you don't. Now, this can be legitimate, um, but, you know, in the case of health providers or employers, you know, they, they argue reasonably that they can collect this data to serve you better. And, you know, one of the boasts with Cambridge Analytica, and the, you know, the, the CEO, Alexander Nix, was that they could use personal data blended with social to create profiles of voters in the UK Brexit and the US election, 2016 election, which knew people better than they knew themselves, than they did themselves. And this played an undoubted role in the 2016 election. And while, you know, this basic data scraping is now banned on Facebook, there's evidence that now mobile apps in particular are a source for data, which is then used to push often misleading messages to voters about eligibility and timings, even locations. So there's a lot of FUD going on. You know, I, I really like what you said, and I, I'm going to use this term, social 51% attack. I think that's exactly what it is. All you need is 51% of the vote. You have the majority. We have a simple majority here in the States, in the UK as well. Um, that <laughs> all, That's all you need to do is to gain that, uh, let's call it social hashing power. Um Inverse privacy. You said inverse privacy. What is inverse privacy? Can you explain that a little bit more? And then with that inverse privacy, can you go ahead and please just touch on what people, what these companies can do with that data? Look, you said you're a bearded white man. Um, and, you know, people might attach, uh, attach that imagery to a certain political ideology. I guess the question here is, how dangerous is this data in, in the hands of, say, a bad actor or some people that want to use this data? Can they actually manipulate your ideologies to what they want to? Are they able to use it to bend your ideologies to gain that, I say, social hashing power? Um they, they, they can. Um, if I think the biggest, the biggest, you know, weapon in their to armory is the fact that you're you're unaware that it exists. 
um, and of the connections that are being made. I mean, like here in the UK, you've got something which is called, the, you've got a centralized resource, which is the electoral roll. Now that has all the details of voter addresses and info. Now this has long been one of the richest resources uh, for marketers wanting to target consumers in things like, you know, direct marketing, door drops and things like that. And again, political parties have also built up detailed um, profiles of named voters based on this data, on polling data, uh, on social that we just talked about, and blended data. So I think at the moment we're moving from a situation where, you know, there's been First of all, there's been very little control over our own data about what's being done with it. So that concept of inverse privacy is when other organisations know more about me than I do myself. So if you think about it, well, we're, we're, you know, we're living via screens now, as I keep telling my teenage daughter, but she doesn't listen to me. But, you know, it starts to control our, our, our identity and our reality. And this has also led to an unfair assumption that people don't care about privacy or what happens to their data. And there's like, you know, there's nothing to see here. You know, I'm calling BS on that. Um, you know, the fact is that they haven't been given the information to become aware or exercise any kind of real choice, which is similar actually to the situation we used to have with things like accessing financial financial products so it's 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 denying life opportunities to them and i think you know we're starting to see a shift you know first with gdpr in europe and in with ccpa in california rightly bringing more focus on citizens rights around data um, you know, but there is a, this problem with this, with, with, with the centralized stores of data is twofold. Um, you know, and that's where this um, inverse privacy comes in. Firstly, there's a lack of consumer grade tools for people to discover, repatriate, analyze and share the data that they hold about them, giving them agency in that way. And secondly, the institutions which hold this data, we're putting a lot of trust in them to do the right thing, not just the legal thing, the right thing. And at the moment, they're marking their own homework. So, you know, around how well they comply and manage that data. And we generally only find out when something goes horribly wrong, like the Equifax breach a few years back, where details of 150 Americans, 150 million Americans were lost. And once that trust is lost, it's very difficult to move. You know, people become cynical. And that's where they can become very susceptible to these uh, conspiracy theories. Last question is re real quick. What, what can we do? And I know we can say take back our data. We can control our data. But first, thing, first, that's not really possible. Our data is already out there. People know just about uh, enough about me right now to use that data for the next 10 years of my life at least. Um, what, but what needs to happen? And please, just please briefly touch on this. But what needs to happen in terms of government, in terms of tech companies, in terms of our... I guess, social or collective consciousness about what our data is? Yeah, uh, great question. Well, I mean, I think if we take the example from, you know, from crypto, like cold wallets, that coins are bearer assets, you know, like, you know, not your keys, not your crypto, then regulators and governments should help to people to start to apply that concept with their data assets too. And it's, you know, it's really important that companies that are wanting to do things with data aren't adding to this problem. You know, you're quite right. At the moment, hundreds of organizations have got my data. I've lost control. But if I'm forming, you know, a relationship with a new, if, you know, if I want to be a new player on the data, uh, on the data uh, sort of table, then 
I want to demonstrate that I'm doing the right thing by data. So data minimization and asking questions about companies. When I'm talking to people in contact, say who work in contact centers, they say the biggest question they have at the moment is, where did you get my data? Or if someone is, you know, pissed off in a conversation, they will want to start to to, to ask questions, difficult questions about that data. At the moment, the the default is just to bounce them into a kind of regulation uh, conversation when they say, I don't have to, you know, I'll, I'll give you what I have to and no more. Actually, people should be asking questions and starting that dialogue. And regulators should and are starting to facilitate that. And, you know, companies have been slower to get with a program. But when you see the example of, say, US President uh, Andrew Yang and his data dividend call to action, you can see the direction of travel, but people are aware that their data is value. It's being used that they used in ways they don't support it, and it can even harm them. And they're not being dealt into a market which is worth around two hundred billion dollars a year. Now, unlocking that data, that personal agency, and as a source of revenue, is I think it's a killer app for crypto. Uh, you know, it's DeFi on steroids. So I'm optimistic that we should watch this space. Right on, Gilbert Hill, CEO of Tap My Data. Thank you very much for coming on the show and talking about this. I hope to Thank talk you. to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Great to speak with you. Pete, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to, to be part of the, the show here. I appreciate the time. I appreciate the time because this is the time that we need to talk about this. This is what I'm talking about is voting. In the United States, it's just a, it's just a mess. We're talking about polling places being taken away. We're talking about people on lockdown, people scared to get COVID-19 going out to vote for the president of the United States. And then, you know, of course, the conversation is mail-in ballots. Are they going to be reliable, trustworthy? Can, can we, the people, trust our ballot, our vote to be cast for this election? And you know, with all of that, I just want to, you know, cut through through all of the BS. And I want to say that, one, can you please tell us about the system that we have right now with voting and possible better solutions for the American people to cast their ballot tr in a trustworthy way or maybe a trustless way? Yeah, that's a great question. It's uh, this is on the minds of a lot of people right now, obviously. So, you know, if you if you kind of step back from all the noise in the media, there's there's really only two ways to vote. It's either in person or remotely. And then when you talk about remotely, um, you talk about a couple of different ways from the mail-in ballot, so we can get into that in a little bit more detail, um, or some alternative ways, which is what we're focused on and some of our competitors, which is the ability to vote through your mobile device or over the internet um, and doing that in a very secure and a very verifiable way. And so that's that's really, you know, pretty much that it's that simple. And from the in-person perspective, as you kind of touched on, um, a lot of people, because of COVID, um, are very concerned about going to a polling place. And we'll get into a little bit more detail, but um, I can tell you that the elections that we're running right now, um, the uh, voter turnout is four times what was in the primary uh, earlier this year, which we also ran for our clients. And it's about 50% more than what we did in 2016. So there's a lot of interest in this election. Um, there's a lot of interest in avoiding going to a polling place and you know potentially getting covid um, and just lots of enthusiasm for what's going on right now. I think we need to have a baseline first before we ha start talking about these alternatives to remote voting. Do you think that mail-in voting, ma these mail-in ballots are a secure way to vote? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the short answer is I, I do. Um, I want to put my trust and faith in the U.S. postal system. Um, I think the issue, um, you know, beyond just 
you know, can the mail get delivered and is it trustworthy is uh, this is a fairly new way to vote for a lot of people. And obviously the volume for the postal service is way up. So there's lots and lots of issues and they're, they're typically human issues. It's not a fraud thing. It's not a, you know, and yes, there are some examples out there um, currently, even from this last week. Um, but for the most part, it's, it is a relatively secure way to vote, um, but it comes with lots of problems. And so in the primary, uh, 500,000 ballots have been um, invalidated uh, just in the primary. Um, and it's again, that's not a fraud issue. It's not a U- U.S. Postal Service issue. It's things like the signature doesn't match what the election um Commission has on the on the record from the DMV. It is people not having a witness, people not signing the inner envelope. So it's all of these human errors that have come up just in the primary, and it's going to be exacerbated here in the general. And if you think about in the 2016 election, where the difference in the public vote was only three million votes, 500,000 just in the primary is a huge number. So you've got you know some of the delays and issues with the postal service, then you have just you know human error. And then you have um, all just the logistical issues of processing the ballots in time. And it's just kind of craziness. (laughs) <laughs> I want to I want to try to just frame this uh, in more of a dumbed down <laughs> rating system, if I will. If you were going to rate, if you were going to rate voting in per- person on like a scale of one to ten, as one being the less least safe and ten being the most safe way to vote, what would you give that? Well, when you say safe, meaning the security and the integrity of the ballot, yes, sir. Um, I would say it's a nine. Okay. And now if you said uh, remote voting and mail-in ballots, what would you give that? For mail-in ballots, I would say it's about a six or a seven. Whether you're voting through the mail, whether you're voting in person, right? I'm going to actually put them in the same category for just a second. Without using the technology we use and some of our competitors, as a voter, um, you have to put your trust completely in um, the elections commission, the election body that's processing those ballots. And so as an individual voter, you have no idea, no definitive, verifiable proof that your vote was cast and counted exactly as you intended. So, so in both systems, the way that process works currently, um, even if you trust walking into a polling place and casting your ballot, you still don't know individually when you walk away from there, even if you get a paper receipt, whether that vote was actually counted as you exactly as you intended. And that's the problem that we solve more than anything else. We've talked to lots of elections officials over the five years we've been doing this, and I can um, tell lots of stories about fraud that happened in the polling place, but it's not a ton. It, it's a, you know, in, infinitesimal percentage of what's happened. So I'd say, you know, the likelihood of your vote being counted exactly as you cast it is, you know, 9.99%. And mail-in ballots? Mail-in ballots, I'd say it's somewhere between a five and a seven. Um, okay. And, and the reason, reason why I did this is because now I want to talk about a different system. And I want to talk about the what you're working on at Votum as, as a way to vote via your iPhone or your digital devices and how trustworthy that is to count your vote and make sure that that vote gets to and know that you're voting for a certain person is being counted for that person and it's being registered the way that it was intended to be. So can you go ahead and talk about Votum and how you're creating a new way of voting? Yeah, our, our platform is built on a technology called blockchain. And without getting into the technical details of what blockchain is, it gives you the ability to verify every vote in real time 
um, through independent authorities. So what I mean by that is you could, in theory, have every candidate, every political party, the media, election observers, whatever, um, all be verifying, mathematically verifying every vote as it comes in. And only if and only those votes are actually validated, will it actually get written to the ballot box. So once that then happens, we go through a process using similar technology that allows you as the voter to get a essentially a digital receipt that says from the time that you cast that ballot to the time that we actually counted it, not a single bit has been changed. And, and again, that's that's kind of the game changer. And, and this is all done through this technology called blockchain, where you're verifying every vote in real time. And how safe is that? Is, 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 can you fraud it? Can you not max up signatures, like you said, with the mail-in ballots? Is there any issues with this? Yeah, I think that from a technical perspective, it's pretty sound. Um, and we're constantly battling the complexity of all of these technical components with um, the ability for security researchers to verify that er everything is working properly. Um, but, you know, we've, we've just been scanned by the states that we work with. We're, we've just been recently scanned by the federal government, by the Department of Homeland Security, and we came out pretty squeaky clean. So I will, you know, I will never say that um, the system is unhackable. No system is completely unhackable. But we're about as impenetrable as you could possibly get at the moment. So how would this work? I mean, tell me about the UI of this. I mean, what would you envision in the future of every American citizen voting? Would you think that it un you unlock your ballot with your face ID on your Apple or your Apple ID? Or do you have a special like private key and you send it to a public uh, address, like a, a government address? How would, how would the whole voting process work? Yeah. So the, the, the first part of it is the authentication that you are an eligible voter, right? And there's lots of ways that we do that. We do it through a combination of uh, last four of your social or driver's license with a pin that we send you. We can do this through any biometrics from your facial ID um, tied to your, you know, some kind of a photographic identification. Um, at, at the end of the day, the technology has far surpassed the, the law, meaning all states have different ways of authenticating you as a voter. And we just have to comply with, it, with whatever the law is in that state. And most laws right now basically say that anybody can show up and vote. Um, you don't need a photo ID or anything else. And so we have to figure out ways around that. But in the future, uh, we would love the ability to uh, use any kind of a biometric uh, indicator to authenticate that you are who you are. And based on that, then you receive the, the appropriate ballot based on your precinct. You said that the tech has already surpassed the the law of, of what you need to vote. So if the tech has already surpassed the law and what you need to vote, and you are obviously are doing this, as you told me, explained to me offline, that there are states for overseas voters or people in the military uh, using your system already, what's the holdup to roll this out in the whole United States, especially in a dire need like right now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think it's a combination of three things. It's a combination of politics. Um, some people believe in the notion of more verifiable identification. Some do not. So it turns into a political debate. If you just bring up, should you have a photo ID, you're going to get people from both sides kind of arguing their point of view. You've got in three players in the industry that are fairly entrenched that have you know, they are the ones that are making the physical voting machines at a polling place. They have no incentive whatsoever to go to remote voting because that kills their business. So you've got a lot of entrenched interest. Um, and then 
you know, you've just got the fear of hacking at the consumer level and it's, it's a legitimate fear and it, um, you know, it needs to be addressed properly. And so you've got kind of those three things that are working against us um, and trying to make this more pre prevalent in the U.S. Uh, we've got an offering that we're going to introduce next year that will give the voter the ability to do pretty much everything you'd want to do where you authenticate yourself, you actually get your ballot, you mark your ballot, um, but you still go to the polling place then, and then you can print off your ballot and vote in a traditional manner. And we think that's a great on-ramp to making this, you know, more widespread in the U.S. kind of uh, going forward. Then you can think of it like as a fast pass or, you know, as, you know, pre-ordering Starbucks and then just going to go pick up your, your, your drink. It's the same kind of thing. So of those three uh, problem areas that you, you said, I understand the politics one, but you also said the entrenched interest of the businesses that are making the, the voting machines. I, my question with that one really quick is, it would be so much more cost effective if they just say, bought your company and put all of their you know infrastructure on, say, a, a cloud system or a blockchain, and then just licensed out their software to other states. I mean, why would they need physical machines anymore? They could just sh shift their business. Doesn't that make more sense? Um, yeah, it does to us. <laughs> But, you know, if, if you're a hundred million dollar company and let's just say that our our cost for an election commission is, let's just say, 25 percent of that. Right. Are you going to be the company that says, all right, great, we're going to shut down a hundred million dollar business and we're going to turn it into a twenty five million dollar business. Right. There's no business incentive to do that. And so, you know, it might be a good adjunct for some of those companies um, where if they feel like that is the future they can uh, make it complementary to their current offering, but nobody's going to change their business model to, to basically cut it by 75%, right? Well, I mean, that's just because you're, you have a, a value proposition of making it cheaper than, say, Diebel or whoever's making these uh, um, machines. I mean, but if that machine company was just said, hey, we're going to, because we all know governments get charged appropriate and fair rates for everything, uh, if they just charged them the same amount, I mean, they could have cut their costs and increased their profit for the shareholders. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just talking about business models. It doesn't really matter. The second thing that you said was hacking. Do you think that, we, we see these machines get hacked all the time. We see kids in uh, middle school, you know, <laughs> hack them in under, under a minute at, at hackathons. Is, do you think that the fear of the public is just because they don't either, one, know the actual security of these machines and, two, understand the power of the blockchain? I think let's let's talk about the first one first, uh, which is, uh, you know, the public perception of hacking these machines. So the, the media has done a great disservice to the public in reporting uh, what comes out of DEF CON. And, you know, where the kid hacked a machine in, uh, you know, a minute or whatever, or a short period of time, that wasn't a legitimate voting machine that's in production. And the machines that are it, you know, came out of DEF CON. Um, there are, you know, more than just software and technical security features. There are also operational technical features. In other words, these voting machines are sitting in warehouses that are locked up and have cameras on them and they're monitored consistently. So for somebody to pick up a machine at DEF CON, you know, off of eBay and literally take screwdrivers and, and you know, pliers and pull it apart and, you know, change out the chipset, that's not going to happen in reality. And so um, because there's operational, you know, security procedures and everything else. So, you know, a lot of the reports that have come out of around the hacking of the voting machines is just not going to happen in real life. Um, and then from the blockchain perspective, um, you know, I had I was at a think tank a couple of years ago and, and a former secretary of state asked me, you know, how do you explain blockchain to secretaries of state? And my answer was, I don't. Um, it's, it's a complicated technology, <laughs> right, that they don't need to understand. You know, you don't need to understand how a plane flies to get on a plane. You don't need to understand how a car works to go drive a car. Right. 
And so we talk about what it enables, which is the ability to have end-to-end verifiability across the entire voting chain um, with chain of custody um, without having to explain what the heck blockchain is. And I think as an industry, as a blockchain industry, if you will, we talk a lot about how this is a unique industry and that we tend to explain blockchain by how it works as opposed to what it does. Um, And so, you know, if if you look at a microwave and you say, you know, what does that do? You don't start talking about shooting gamma rays at food. You say, hey, it cooks food faster. And, and that's where we need to move as an industry, right? right? Is right. what it does, not how it works. So so going into a little bit of inside baseball with this, because, you know, being in the blockchain industry, um, we talk about the capabilities of the blockchain. And if we're voting for, say, 200 million people in the United States, especially if you put a phone in everybody's hand and everybody has the access to vote from their sofa, we're one of the biggest talking points is the throughput of any blockchain, the ability for a blockchain to be able to record uh, said data fast enough and get it to the point fast enough without an exorbitant amount of either energy being expended or just a lot of backups and delays. Uh, Is that a valid concern from the blockchain or crypto space? No, not at all. Um, And so uh, the reason is um, we don't use a public blockchain like Ethereum or, or the Bitcoin blockchain or anything. We use a private permission based blockchain and, um, um, we built it so that it can scale. So we've we've actually run the largest blockchain vote um, in the world. Um, and it was actually not, it wasn't a public election. It was for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it was over 3 million votes. And uh, we had, I think, a half a million within literally probably a, um, a couple of hours when, when the vote opened up. And there were zero issues. There was no latency problems whatsoever. And that's just based on the fact that we're using a private permission chain. Um, and that we, you know, we built it for scale. And so if you think about 200 million people voting, 200 million people are not going to vote all at the same time, right? You have all the laws in the books around early voting and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we can scale it properly. That's, that's just not an issue for us whatsoever. Final question, I guess, is more philosophical. And uh, the previous, as I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation is the previous discussion we had on this podcast was about our data, about manipulating the votes based on our data, us not controlling our data. Do you see that there's any slippery slope um, situation with having a phone in your hand with the manipulation of elections or fake news or deep fakes, AI fakes, or, or whatever kind of new text that's going to come out to try to manipulate the voters to in what my previous guest called, and I thought brilliantly, was a social 51% attack, <laughs> was do you think that that's having this power in your hand of the vote in your on your cell phone could exasperate that issue of vote manipulation or uh, fake news or or just a hacking the individual? Uh, yeah, it's that's if you if you talk to most election officials, they will tell you that is their biggest concern is the disinformation. Uh, we we are part of a a group called the Sector Coordinating Council, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, and it's all the the major elections of vendors. And we got it. We get on calls. We've been on calls three times a week, pretty much through this election season, to talk about you know the vulnerabilities um, from nation states, from you know all the different avenues of of influence um, that um, others are trying to put on the U.S. election system. And most of the conversations around the disinformation. And so, you know, to have. To go from a tweet or a Facebook post or whatever to be able to then easily vote on your phone, 
you know, you take all the friction away. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a concern. Um, you know, we're not going to solve the disinformation piece of it. That's not what we're focused on doing. Um, and so maybe having less friction is a little bit more concerning. But, uh, you know, we we, fundam- we fundamentally come at this from the perspective of, you know, it should be easy to vote and difficult, if not impossible to cheat. And that's what we're really focused on. And so as long as we are successful in that regard, um, I think that no matter what disinformation is out there, um, you know, whether you're voting through the mail, whether you're voting in person, whether you're voting, you know, through our app, um, it's it's kind of the same thing. You just got to take a breath and say, you know, how do I really want to cast this ballot? And is this the proper system that I'm on? And, and you know, there's lots of other issues outside just pure security that we need to be concerned about. So um, that's what we're focused on doing. But yeah, disinformation is definitely a piece of it. Right on, Pete Martin, CEO of Votum and a fellow Clevelander. Thank you for coming <laughs> on the show and talking about this very important and timely issue. Thanks, Matthew. I really appreciate it. It was uh, great fun. And, and uh, go out and vote, everybody. you got a couple of weeks left. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. That's all for this week. I hope you enjoyed my week off. And if you enjoyed it better than my normal week, you can also let me know that. Go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, please subscribe, leave me a rating, and a comment. It's very much appreciated to make sure that these episodes get into the hands of people who want to know about crypto, blockchain tech, and this emerging industry. I'll see you on Monday for a normal episode of the Decrypt Daily. Happy hodling, and stay safe, and have a good weekend.